Amen. Good morning, Two Cities Church. If you don't know this, we love families, we love kids, and uh, we love stories like that, right? Uh, many of you have told us over the years uh, you're thinking about foster care, you're, uh, you are a foster parent, or you're, you're thinking about adoption, or you're pursuing international adoption. And we finally sat around the table as a staff and said, we need to do something about this. We, we need to invest more deeply in the people of our church. And because of your generosity, we're launching a new initiative today. We're taking $100,000 of the mission budget, and we're starting an initiative to help you do foster care and adoption. I hope you're excited about that. Here's what that means. If you say, I want to be a foster parent, one, uh, write this down, interest meeting 11-14, November 14th, you'll get more information. We're going to help you. If you would say, look, I want to get kind of in the process and I, I'm thinking about fostering. If you decide to foster, we are going to reimburse your expenses up to $2,500 for you to get ready to do foster care. So amen to that. And then if you're like, I want to do adoption, we are going to reimburse you up to 25% or, or 25% of the cost of adoption up to $10,000. So I want you just to know we're dead serious about this. We, we think of kids as a blessing, not a burden. And we want to, we're going to see today in the text, Jesus loves kids. Jesus was the type of people or the type of person kids wanted to be around. And we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the children of our city. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we, we ask that you right now in this room would begin to work on some people's hearts, or maybe you're going to affirm or confirm some desires that have been in some couples' lives, to, to step up and, and at some level do foster care or consider adoption, Lord. And we just want, we hope that this, one, we just thank you for the generosity of our church that we're able to do this. And, and two, we just hope that this is just such an encouragement that it speaks to the families of our church and says, we are here for you, we are behind you, and we want to encourage you to take your first step and your next step, whether it's in foster care or adoption. We ask that many families to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the two most popular months of the year to get divorced? August and March. Some of you go, whew, we just made it through August. <laughs> March is coming. Um, why August and March? Why August and March? We don't know, right? There's correlation. There's causation. It's hard to, to, to tell what's what, right? Here's what people think who've studied this. A lot of people, when marriage is going really, really hard, they want to give it one last shot. They normally do that over the summer, and they normally call that vacation. But here's what, 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 do, what do couples know about vacation? It's where you fight the most. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually, technically speaking, you tend to fight the most about your free time and during your free time because they're so valuable. And then why March? Well, we don't know for sure, but a lot of people think, it's kind of like, let's, let's get through the holidays. Let's try this one more time with our families. Let's make some New Year's resolutions about it. But then Valentine's Day comes again. It's just a reminder that it's not working. And we see an uptick again in March. Well, today Jesus talks about divorce. This is one of the advantages, maybe you might say disadvantages, of doing expositional preaching. We're not talking about divorce because, like in a lot of churches, if the pastor talks about divorce, it's like, who's getting divorced? No, 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 no. This is just the next thing in the text. That's all. Today, we're actually talking about divorce. We're going to talk about marriage because Jesus is going to say, you can't talk about divorce without talking about marriage. So we'll talk about both those. And then he's going to talk about money. So nothing major today. Just <laughs> marriage, divorce, money, all in 45 minutes. So uh, th th this is interesting because these are really sensitive topics, right? 
We might say difficult, but they're not really difficult. The Bible's very clear on them. It's not that they're difficult. It's more that they're sensitive. Because your marriage is like, I mean, well, it's the most intimate relationship you have, and your life is only as good or bad as your closest relationships. And so when you're in a bad marriage, it's, it feels like you're sick all the time. Sometimes people, it's hard to talk about marriages because it's like, well, you know, you talk about marriages, it brings up all these bad memories of like your parents' marriage. Not for everybody, you know, maybe not even for most people, but for certain people, it's like, well, I remember when I was in middle school, that's when they split. Or what's even more common, right? There's an increase today in what they call gray divorces. People with gray hair getting divorced. And the most likely time to get divorced is when your youngest kid goes to college because you had a child-centered marriage and not a Christ-centered marriage. And when the glue, children, that was holding the marriage together, when they're gone, there's no purpose for the marriage anymore. 50%, they say, of marriages end in divorce. Now, that's inflated a little bit because it counts people who get divorced more than once, which is common. So if you take all marriages, all first-time marriages that end in divorce, you still get around 35% of marriages. Now, why is money so difficult to talk about? Money is so difficult to talk about because it's like, you know, let's just admit it. It determines a lot of our life. Let's play a game. It's called, what if you made twice as much as you make? Just think about like that in your mind, whatever that number is. Just double your current salary or double your family income and think about how your life would change. And the answer is, it would probably change a lot. It's like, oh, I know you'd make all the same decisions. No, you probably wouldn't. Your retirement account would look different. Your, maybe you, your, the options for where your kids can go to school all of a sudden open up. You start actually going to nice places for your vacation. <laughs> it's like, you, you, you know, okay, let's play the other game. What happens if you made half of what you make? Well, some people, they, they have enough margin that that, okay, fine. We, we, but for most people, it's like if you made half of what you made, everything in your life would need to change immediately, and you'd be so stressed out you couldn't believe it. You'd, it'd be hard for you to function. Well, that's the power of money. And so today, Jesus is going to talk to us about divorce, marriage, and then money. Let's go to it. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, And Jesus left there, he left there, and he went to the region of Judea. We'll come back to why that's important. And beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. So whenever we're given the geography or geographical placements of where Jesus is, it's always for, a, usually it's for a purpose. Um, what's the last thing that happened in the region of Judea? Well, it sets up this whole story. The last thing that happened in the region of Judea is John the Baptist got his head cut off here. You go, well, why is this important? Well, why, first you have to ask the question, why did John the Baptist get his head cut off? Because he talked about divorce and remarriage. And he told Herod, the leader of the day, that you have an unbiblical divorce and you have an unbiblical remarriage. And how'd that end up for John? Not very well. His head got cut off, which is a reminder that, and I'm aware of this, that anytime you say what the Bible says about divorce and marriage or remarriage or any of these topics, it's not popular. What we're going to see in verse 2 is the Pharisees come and they try to trick and trap and test Jesus, and their hope is he's going to say something about divorce and remarriage that's going to get his head cut off, just like John the Baptist's head got cut off. Okay, well, let's look at the question. Here it is. Verse 2, and the Pharisees came up in order to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a question that every generation asks. And let's be honest, most people who are asking about divorce, it's emotional more than it's theological, usually. 
In fact, when it comes to divorce, and I only talk about these things when they come up, which is like once or twice a year as we're walking through a book. But there's really, there's really three things when it comes to divorce. The first question on divorce is, can I get divorced? And for what reasons? That's one question. And then the, another question that's connected to the divorce question is, okay, so I'm divorced. Can I get remarried and under what terms? What if I was the innocent person in the divorce? What if I was the guilty person in the divorce, but that was before I was a Christian, so now I'm a new creation in Christ. Does that matter? Do I have to rec- try to reconcile before I could remarry? And then there's a, there's a third question over here. What, what role do I have in the church now? Can I be an elder? I, say I was divorced. Say I was divorced and or remarried. How does it, can I be a deacon? Can I lead a community group? I won't be able to answer in great depth to your satisfaction because we have to talk about a lot of things, probably all those questions. I, I would recommend, uh, one, if you have a really difficult question about divorce or remarriage, Pastor Dave would love to talk to you afterwards, okay? <laughs> um, second is, um, there's a book, God, Marriage, and Family. God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberg. It's about 500 pages, and he goes into great depth theologically on all of these issues, okay? And I wanted to give that to both of you who will read that book, okay? Um, <laughs> um, but we're, we're going to look at this together. So here's what's happened in our culture. Let, let's, talk, let's talk about divorce. Um, divorce has become normalized, right? I mean, Tom Brady got divorced this week. We're not surprised when. Are you surprised when celebrities get divorced? We're surprised when they stay married. I consider one year of a celebrity marriage a dog year, okay? It's worth seven. If a celebrity's been married for 10 years, like that's like 70 years in real people's lives. Uh, divorce is uh, becoming normalized. There's no-fault divorce. Ronald Reagan started that. He said later that was one of his greatest regrets. Ronald Reagan started that. Um, we use lots of euphemisms for divorce today. So when, when Gwyneth Paltrow divorced her husband, who was a lead singer of Coldplay, she said, we are conscious uncoupling. Or you'll see a lot of people get divorced, and, and of course, this shouldn't surprise us, they will try to act like it's not a big deal. So remember when Jeff Bezos got divorced? So wealthy, he gets divorced and is still the richest person in America. Crazy. He, he gets divorced. They both write raving reviews of each other on Twitter. It was a great 25 years. I would marry you again. <laughs> Except no, <laughs> right? And we will from now on continue to be friends and co-parents. You're seeing this more and more common. Back then, there were two, I've told you this before, there were two traditions. There was the liberal tradition, theological liberal tradition. There was the theologically conservative tradition on divorce, like on any issue. I'm not going to take you there, but you can go to Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, it's the clearest passage in the Old Testament on divorce. Now, there's a phrase in there where it says a man can divorce his wife for indecency. Now, there were two schools, like I told you, the, the, the liberals and the conservatives. And the conservative school, the Shema school, they said indecency, it's the, it's the Hebrew word for nakedness. This is talking about a sexual relationship. This is adultery. That is the only condition under which a person can get divorced. That was the Shema school. Then there was the Hillel school. By the way, if you ever go to a college campus, all the Jewish groups on the college campus are usually called Hillel. Hillel was the theologically liberal arm of Judaism under Rabbi Hillel. Well, Rabbi Hillel said, actually, no, 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 no. Indecency is a junk drawer word, and it can be for all types of things. And so under the Hillel school, they said, you can get divorced for any any reason and no reason at all. There's accounts, it may sound silly to us, there's accounts of people getting divorced because the wife burned the food. 
There's accounts of getting divorced because the husband found somebody more attractive. Now, back then, what do you think was the more popular view? The Hillel school or the Shema school? The Hillel school, it always is. It's never been popular to say the door for divorce is a very, 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 very small door and should be entered with great reservation. That's never a popular message. But we'll see how Jesus answers. Look here. Verse 3. Jesus, he answered them, what did Moses command you? What I want you to see is we try to do what Jesus did here, which is when people come to us with difficult texts, we might tell you tradition, we might tell you some stories occasionally, we may point you to some different books, but our heart is to point you to Scripture. This is our heart. Our heart is to say, look, God's Word is not silent about the most difficult questions and issues in your life. And part of what it means to grow as a Christian is you go to the Word of God more and more, you go, I want to be guided, I want to be guarded, I want to be governed by the Word of God. And, and as you grow and as you just are introduced to new dimensions of your life, you should just ask God about it. You're going to buy a house. God, what does your word say about debt? I'm about to take out a mortgage. I never had to ask that question. Now I want to know what God's word says about that because I'm 21. I know what people say about alcohol, but what does the word of God say about alcohol? I have a family. What does the Bible say about being a mom or a dad? I'm heading toward retirement. What does the Bible say about end of life and the last quarter of our life? What Jesus does is he points him to the word of God. Here, look, look at verse 4. Uh, they said, they respond, okay, here, here's what happened. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. This is very helpful to understand. So Moses allowed something to happen. It says uh, a certificate of divorce. And what was that? That gave the woman the rights and reputation to remarry. See, here's what happened. Back then, women didn't divorce their husbands. Only men divorced their wives. What's interesting today is 75% of divorces are initiated by women. I'm not saying it's their fault, but basically the woman, more sensitive negative emotion, is normally the one to put her foot down and go, I'm done. No more of this. I can't handle it anymore. Back then it was all men divorcing their wives. And so it, this is actually a very kind thing that Moses put in place under the provision of God to protect women. Because who, who are the real victims of divorce? Women and children. I mean, historically, globally, biblically, women and children. Back then, what are the options for a divorced woman? I mean, there's no shelters. There's no safety net. There's no social security. If you're a divorced woman, it's like, well, here's your options. I hope your kids are old enough to take care of you, or I hope you can remarry. So the certificate was actually a very gracious thing that God allowed to happen. But Jesus helps us understand more. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, God allowed something that wasn't his first desire, right? Divorce was not part of the Genesis 1 and 2 beginning of the world strategy of God. Divorce is something that the Bible says God allows, we'll get to this, under certain circumstances because of the sinfulness of the human heart. Here's how we think about divorce here. We think about divorce like an amputation of a limb. So imagine your foot was hurting you and you said, man, my foot's really hurting me. Well, what would you do? Well, you'd probably try to stretch it and then you'd go see a physical therapist and they said, this is actually more serious. You're going to need to see a foot doctor. So you go to see the foot doctor. He may give you some medication. He may do a surgery, right? I mean, you would try anything and everything before you have your foot amputated. 
Now, under certain circumstances, if the foot is in that place and it's going to affect the rest of the body, then you have to have it amputated. Nobody should get divorced because they want to. You only get divorced because you have to. But I'm actually getting ahead of myself. I'm actually talking about this in the wrong order, but it's just the order that Jesus gets it. He, he gets the question, and he goes, guys, hold on. He answers really, makes a statement about divorce, goes, guys, we can't talk about divorce without talking about marriage. Look at verse six. He goes, guys, we're, we're having this conversation backwards. Look. But from the beginning of creation, he goes back to creation, Genesis 1 and 2. He literally is quoting Genesis 2. God made them male and female. We talked about that last week. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is, let me give you, you came this morning, let me give you a, a theological phrase. Um, creation ordinance. Marriage is considered by theologians a creation ordinance. There's a couple what are called creation ordinances. A creation ordinance is something that God gave in Genesis 1 and 2 to all of humanity before sin and the fall entered. So, like, there's not like, just Christians should get married, but other people shouldn't get married. No, no, marriage is a creation ordinance. Work is in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not like Christians work and non-Christians shouldn't work. No, no, no. Work is given to humans, not Christians. Having children, Genesis 1 and 2. To be fruitful, multiply. Not just given to Christians. That's a human. That's a human flourishing issue. So here's what this means. There's a couple things. What I'm, what I'm going to do just for a moment, and I feel foolish doing this, but because it's so simple and it's so basic, but we live in a society where the obvious has become opaque. I'm going to give you guys an understanding of marriage from this text, which is from the mouth of Jesus, quoting Genesis 2. Let me give you four or five things about marriage I want us to know. First, marriage is pre-political. Do you see this? So there's no, you read Genesis 2, you're like, there's no government yet. Exactly. Now, today, like, nothing is pre-political, right? Every statement you make on something, they're going to say it's political, Marriage is pre-political. In other words, the government didn't create it, and the government can't change it. Now, the government does get involved in marriage for one main reason, historically, because of what marriage produces. Marriage produces something the government cares a lot about, children, <laughs> future citizens of their society. But the first thing we need to see about marriage is it's God's design, it's God's doing, it's pre-political. The second thing we need to see about marriage is that only two people should be in a marriage. You're like, this is, why, did, why am I here? <laughs> Why did I come for this basic thing? Well, we live in a society where really more polygamy and polyamory are being advocated for more and more. People that I respect, people that I follow, people that I listen to, people who are in much more secular cities than, than I am have said they think that, that for sure polygamy will be legalized in our lifetime. And you go, well, why would that be? Well, you have to think about marriage, right? I mean, when it comes to marriage, what makes it unique is man, woman, and what makes it unique is two people. And if you think historically, which one of those ideas about marriage is harder to change historically? It's changing the gender, not the number of people. Polygamy is ancient, ancient. It's all over the world. The idea that a husband would have more than one wife is a super old idea that's been found in many, many different cultures. Whereas same-sex marriage is newer than your iPhone. That's how new it is. Not like in America, like no, in human history, it's that new. There was your iPhone, and then several years later, there was same-sex marriage. So it's two people. The, the second thing about marriage, or the third thing maybe we're on, is that a marriage is supposed to be one man 
and one woman. Maybe the way we would say it here, you have to be super clear today, one XX chromosome, one XY chromosome person, okay? And so here's why this is important. Marriage is supposed to be one man, one woman for one lifetime. Today, what we have is, you know, the government gets involved and they create something that's called same-sex marriage. Now, same-sex marriage, I'm speaking biblically here. I don't know the legalities of it. I'm speaking from a Christian perspective. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. We're not trying to mean to people. We're not saying people don't love each other. We're not saying people aren't committed to each other. We're not saying, I don't even know how the government gets involved. What we're simply saying is same-sex marriage, it's not marriage. Because marriage is one man, one woman, one lifetime. Well, here's this. Then we see how marriage happens. Marriage happens when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. So this here, here's, why did God give men a strong sexual drive? Primarily so they will grow up. This, this will explain why your, our culture is so bankrupt right now. Here, let me explain how strong the, strong the sexual drive is of a man. I was talking to a father recently. This is not in our church. And he was telling me about how he put this, you know, barrier in to try to protect his kids from looking at inappropriate stuff. He put this, you know, rule in and they didn't have the internet and he didn't have a phone and he, and he finds out that his kid is sneaking at night, grabbing the phone, figured out that through searching on the app store, he can look at inappropriate mature apps. That's a strong sexual drive. Sneak and grab your parent's phone, break the only barrier that you can, Spend lots of time trying to find inappropriate apps on the app store. God gave men a strong sexual drive so that they would grow up. Because what a man should say is something like this. Man, I, okay, I, I have this strong sexual drive. I discovered this at 13 or 14 years old or however old I am. And I can only, God has said the outlet for the strong sexual drive is marriage. So that means that I need to grow up because marriage is for men. Now, today we live in the opposite of this society, right? Where by the time a kid is, you know, you read, every, ever read, like, you know, Solomon had 800 wives. It's like, dude, the average 13-year-old has seen more naked women than that. Pornography. Hookup shack at breakup culture. And so what you have is you have no incentive for young men to grow up. Marriage used to be the beginning of a person's sexual experience. Now in our society, marriage is viewed as the end of a person's sexual experience. And then we're told the, the, the result of marriage is oneness, right? This is why you have the ceremony, that's where you spiritually become one, but then you have the wedding night where you physically become one. And then you have the rest of the marriage where you're trying to practically and progressively become one. The, 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 the Hebrew word is, is basically the word superglue for oneness. And if you ever superglued something together, I mean, if you superglue something together, it's, it's, it's not coming apart. Unless, have you ever had to take something that was super glued apart? There's no way to take it apart without damaging both pieces. Impossible. Impossible. Doesn't matter how many people you get involved. Doesn't, mean the, doesn't matter the reason that it needs to be taken apart. There's no taking apart something that's been super glued without damaging both things. Well, let me show you here. So Jesus, they have more questions. Look at verse... 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, marriage, divorce. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So he goes home, 
they ask, or they go back to the house, they ask some questions about divorce and remarriage. Uh, what you don't see here is what's in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, there's something called the exception clause. Uh, Matthew wrote a longer gospel. He tells us more things. It's not uncommon. Mark doesn't tell us everything that was said. In Matthew's gospel, he says, uh, you can't get divorced except for sexual immorality. This is, that's what's called the exception clause. In 1 Corinthians 7, we're told, Paul says, you can divorce your spouse if it's an unbelieving spouse and he or she has deserted you. So there seems to be some reasons, but let me say this. This is what's really interesting. In Matthew's account of this, which we won't go to right now, if you read Matthew's account of this, at the very end of Jesus talking about divorce and remarriage, his disciples look at him. This is a direct quote. And they go, is it better for us not to marry? So here's what I'm trying to do a little bit. I know it's like, it's kind of tense in here right now. We're talking about some serious stuff. I'm trying to teach you on this so that we have at least part of our emotional responses is if marriage is that serious and that hard to get out of, is it better for us not to get married? Like that, that I want to have a holy fear as I enter marriage, right? Which is the opposite of what most people have today. What do most people have today? I don't know, some big wedding. They're not really thinking about the marriage or thinking about the wedding and how they look and what, what Instagram photos are going to go online. And, and, and then they write their own, you know, silly vows. I will never burn the cookies. I'll laugh at all your jokes. It's like, this marriage is not going to last. I'm trying to teach on this in such a way that we have a, we feel the severity and the seriousness of this. There are three reasons, biblically, historically, that the church has said divorce is permissible, not required in these situations. There are three A's, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Adultery is I break the covenant and I become one with another person. Abandonment, I just told you about. What we, what normally what we see is abandonment, in our situations, abandonment normally follows adultery. We've had certain situations where someone in the church, they committed adultery and, and you try to confront them and you try to talk to them about it and then they don't listen and then they run off with some other woman. This is what's happened. And then you go back to their sad wife and you say, you say something like this, I don't think your husband's a Christian. I can't play JV Holy Spirit. I just don't know how a guy can do this. I don't know how a guy who has the Holy Spirit inside of him cannot listen to, to loving church leadership, does not want to reconcile with his wife and wants to pursue a life of sin. So a lot of times in that situation, we'll tell the person, well, you've actually not just had somebody commit adultery on you. You've now been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And the third category is abuse. And we get that from, well, it's an implication of abandonment. It's a type of abandonment. It's also in, in Malachi chapter two, he talks about a gar your garment is, he talks about a guy who gets divorced. He said his garment is covered in violence. And that's allowable under those conditions because for the safety of the individuals in the home. So then there's one last thing. And I'll just talk about this for a moment is just remarriage. I did a whole sermon on this. You gotta go back to, to Malachi series to, to listen to that. Uh, briefly just talk about remarriage because it's a very sensitive issue for people. Um, we, we, we've, we've, I've actually probably had somewhere between five and 10 people email me in the life of our church before they joined our church wanting to know our position on remarriage. And most of these, I think all these people, they, they had been divorced. And so their question is, would you ever do our, if I ever found somebody, would I be able to get married in this church? We believe there are biblical grounds for divorce and there are biblical grounds for remarriage. 
Here's what we would say. It's such a long, it would be, be like two sermons to get into all this. But here's what I want us to all hear together, and like this is the language for it. Um, when you're dealing with divorce and remarriage, it's not calculus. You need a community of people to walk with. It's not a formula, right? We want a formula. Well, I need to see, can I do these four things and wait this long and then I can, you know, then I can get married again? It's not a formula. You need people of faith to walk with you through this. What, what I will say is we've seen this, and I couldn't think of a better time to talk about it, and you're all right here, so I'll just talk about it right now. <laughs> Something else we've seen, it's kind of interesting, is we, we've seen people, this has happened on a number of accounts, people who they get separated from their spouse, and while they're, there's like a, you know, you had a, there's like a year period to get divorced in, in North Carolina. And during that year period, they will show up with somebody they're romantically involved with. That's not their spouse they're divorcing. They'll show up with somebody they're romantically involved with in our church. They'll bring them to church. And I get it. People are lonely. People are getting old. People are longing for relationship. But the best things that I have heard is you want to wait three years at least from the divorce ending to say, I need time to heal. I need time to process. So I just want to have this conversation now so we just have a culture of this to say this is how we understand these things biblically. Because in all three accounts, when I had to talk to the person about why are you showing up with somebody else here, they all said the same thing. My lawyer said this is fine. It's like not, not, not the, that's not the biblical thinking answer. That's the legal thinking answer. Well, Jesus talks about divorce, and then he talks about children. Look here. It's not an accident that they're together. Here it is, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Those disciples, right? (laughs) But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Um, it's not an accident, and all the commentators notice this, it's not an accident that Jesus talks about divorce, or Mark talks, tells a story about divorce and marriage, and then immediately talks about children. We live in a society, it's interesting, we want to separate things that God has desired to put together, and the principle from Scripture is if God wants something together and you separate it, you're going to bring a lot more pain into your life. So let's talk about sex and marriage, right? Sex and marriage are two things that for all of human history they were thought of to be together until the birth control pill. And the birth control pill, and a couple other things, but basically the birth control pill allowed sex and marriage to be separated from one another. So people think about sex without ever thinking about marriage. How's that working for our society? Not very well. The the second major break is, um, for all of human history, marriage and children were like super close together. You know, whenever I do premarital counseling, which isn't that much anymore, but I always tell couples, if you're not ready to be a parent in nine months after your wedding date, you're not ready to get married. And I'm praying for a honeymoon baby. Twins. No, I don't tell them that. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. First thing I do say, though. Um, And so children are one of the points and purposes of marriage. Now, I I get it. People struggle with infertility. We're not here to beat anyone up. Um, It's it's often part of the silent suffering in the church is people struggle with infertility. I'm talking about people who get married and they never think about kids. There's not that many purposes to marriage. 
Number one purpose of marriage, companionship. Which doesn't mean like I need a buddy and I need like a friend. I mean, it basically, companionship basically means life's too hard for one person. And I'm, I'm very sensitive talking about this stuff because we have lots of single people in our church. And, but if you talk to somebody who's single as they get old, that's what they're worried about, being alone. When my parents, you know, pass, what's going to happen to me? I don't have kids. I don't have a spouse. So as people age and they're single, a lot of times you'll find them, they'll move near their siblings because life's too hard to be lived alone. And what marriage does is it makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. Okay, that's one purpose of marriage. How's it? The second purpose of marriage is sex. Uh, sexual fulfillment, sexual protection. The third purpose of marriage is kids. That's it. And to be a picture of Christ in the church to the world. But technically in the marriage, those are the only three things. It's like, could you imagine if somebody wanted to play basketball, but they're like, yeah, I, I like to play basketball, but I don't like to shoot the ball. It's like, I don't think basketball's for you. Well, I like to dribble and I like to pass. Well, shooting's a huge part of the game. You know, I mean, your kids, and I try to talk about this again, and I, I get people can't have kids, I hear all those airbags. I'm, I'm just trying to tell, because I, I try to say this all the time, people in our society act like they're not going to get older than 40. It's like you're going to get older than 40, most of us, and you're, it's, it's going to come here quicker than you are, and you're going to realize that children are unbelievably important. And it's not something you want to willingly and voluntarily miss out on. Kids are over half your life. Kids are, if you live a normal life, get married at a normal age, kids will be two-thirds of your life. So I had Addie at 26 years old. If I live, the average white male lives to be 78 years old. So say I live to be 78 years old. I will have a relationship with my daughter for 52 years. This is not something you want to miss out on. You can actually, I'm speaking technically here, you can actually have the best relationship possible with any human is with your child because you're starting at ground zero. You're a, you are able to, if you're careful, you are able to shape that relationship and have the best relationship that you could ever have with a person you can have with your kids. Now, no one tells you that anymore. And then grandkids are a third of your life. You don't wanna miss out on these things. So Jesus comes to them. He prays over these kids and blesses them. By the way, this would be the number one time to talk about infant baptism, if he's gonna talk about infant baptism. If he's... <laughs> Guys, we got him here. Get me a bucket of water. We're going to baptize these kids. He doesn't do that. He prays over them. He blesses them. Now, here's what's interesting. There's, I don't fully understand this, and this is my third time doing this, and so maybe the more I talk about it, the more I'll understand it as I talk about it. But um, there, there's some connection between how we view children and how we view God. And here's what I mean by that. Whenever you see a family of, say, eight, say you're at the park or something like that, and there's a family, and they come up, and they have eight kids, what do you immediately think? Mormons, right? I mean, this is what you think. You're like, there's not that many Mormons in Winston-Salem. What's going on here? Um, or you tend to think serious Catholic. Or you tend to think Protestant that homeschools. <laughs> That's your three options. You don't ever think like, look at the family of eight. Aren't they just lovely atheists? I don't think they exist. I don't, I've never met the large family of atheists. I've never met the large family of agnostics. There's something about like, because like, you know, like, like the view on the college campus is like, well, you know, humanity's a cancer on the planet and it'd be better if there wasn't us so that the climate change wouldn't happen and blah, 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 blah. It's like, dude, that is so anti-God. That is such a horrible view of humanity. I can't stand it. It's like, man, the, the view of Christians is like, yes, even though you're going to suffer, 
And even though it's going to be at great cost to myself to bring you into this world and take care of you, especially when you're young, it's worth it. That's a, that's a, I don't fully understand how it connects, but, but people who believe in God do that and people who don't believe in God don't do that. He moves from divorce, children, finally, just very quickly, money. Uh, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he does the right thing. He runs, which uh, that would have been shameful back in that day. It shows desperation. He showed his legs. He kneels. That shows desperation. He asked the right question. How do I enter, uh, enter heaven? How do I have eternal life? But he seems to be wrong about this idea of good. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, because he calls him good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, Jesus wants to know, do you think I'm good as in like better than others or good as in like category all by myself. Well, he gives him the law. So look here. He says this, you know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He gives them what's called the second table of the law. He gives them the last six commandments. Uh, he doesn't give them the first four commandments. He doesn't give them the commandments that have to do with our relationship with God. He gives them the commandments that have to do with the relationship with man. Well, look how he responds. And this is why we think that this guy thought he was a pretty good person. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This guy we call the rich young ruler. Why do we call him the rich young ruler? Well, you actually have to read Matthew's account, Luke's account, and Mark's account to get all the information. One account tells us he's rich. One account tells us he's young. One account tells us he's a ruler. It's the same guy in all the accounts. Okay, he's the rich young ruler, which means somehow he accomplished the American dream at a very young age, right? Maybe this is why he thinks he's okay and he thinks he's a good person. See, usually the more successful you are in this life, you tend to think you're naturally gonna be successful in the next life. I'm not saying it's like well articulated, but it's like, why is like the wealthy business guy like the quintessential like hard guy to reach? Because he thinks he's got everything. It's like, dude, I've got money, I've got friends, I've got houses, I've got meaning. I, 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 I did it right here. I did things right on this earth and I'm gonna be okay in the next life. Look, look at all that I have. Well, he's the rich, young ruler. Let's, 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 let's pick those apart for a second. He's wealthy. Now, what does money do to you? It's hard to talk about. I mean, it's just, there's so much. It'd be a whole nother thing. But um, UC Berkeley, they did a study on how money affects people, how having lots of money affects people. And they, there's, there's a lot of things they found in it. Two things they found is that the more money you have, the less empathy you tend to have for other people. That probably depends on how you gained your money. It probably depends on how long it's been since you didn't have money. Uh, but money, what it does is it, you know, doesn't protect you from everything. I mean, Steve Jobs died of cancer, so money doesn't protect you from everything, but it protects you from a lot of things. And the longer you've been under that protection, the more you can't relate to people in real life. Like the average person, if you don't know this, you know, if they go and they have to get tires on their car and it costs a thousand bucks and they didn't see that coming, that's a big deal. That's a, we're not eating out for months deal. That's a, our vacation is different this year deal. That's a, let's be real careful about our grocery budget over the next few weeks. 
So it, it's possible over time to have less empathy for people. I mean, what's interesting about money too is they say that, again, adjust this for your, for Winston-Salem and adjust it for how many people you have in your family. But uh, a very famous study was done um, that said until a person makes about $75,000, there's a connection between personal happiness and amount of money you make. And it's existentially or kind of, uh, are, really what, where it is is it's when you can keep all the bill collectors away as soon as that happens, money makes no difference in your life. Once you're like, I don't have to think about money all the time. I'm not worried. Everything's going to get paid for. After that, money makes 0% difference in your overall happiness. Up until then, it does. What's interesting also, they said that the two findings they had about money is less empathy, when they were talking about the negative effects of money, less empathy, more addiction. The more money you have, the more, temp the more likely you are to be addicted to something. And it makes sense. Right? I mean, who knows all the things that we're not into because we can't afford them, right? And as soon as you make a lot of money, all of the normal boundaries and barriers in your life that you're like, I just, I don't have extra money to try gambling with. I don't have extra money to buy all these, you know, addictive substances that might be in my life. So he's wealthy. Who knows how that's affecting him? He's young. Now, is it more valuable to be wealthy or to be young? I don't know. Would Jeff Bezos give half his wealth to be half his age? I think so. I would if I was him. Youth is, un what do they say? Youth is wasted on the young? You don't know, right? Because as soon as you turn 40, the word young falls off the front of your name and nothing you do is ever impressive again. <laughs> Just so you know. It's like, I make this much money. You're 40, you should, you know? Uh, I, but, but this is, I think this is why we love celebrities. Why do we love celebrities? Because uh, for the most part, they put together youth and wealth. And you don't normally see those things together. Normally what you do, the average person trades their youth for a skill set and then uses that skill set across time for finances. And at the end, they have money, but they've given up their youth. So to have youth and money at the same time, wow. And then he has power. So he's in authority, he's in control. Here's what's interesting. I want you to see one more time what Jesus does. Look at me at verse 21, it says this. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And then look at this. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now here's the question. Are we all supposed to sell everything that we have? I, the answer is no. And how do we know the answer is no? Well, you have Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is a wealthy guy and salvation comes to his house and he says to Jesus, uh, I sold a half of what I own, I gave it to the poor. And Jesus says, great, salvation has come to your house. Like, Wait a second, why does he only have to give half away? He gets to keep half and this guy has to give it all? Uh, or you got a guy like Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy that lends Jesus the tomb. He's very wealthy, ends up being a follower of Jesus, doesn't seem to have to give any major percentage of his wealth to the poor. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. I'm not getting us off the hook. I'm actually pulling us deeper into this. I think Jesus is saying this. The guy comes up to him and says, hey, good teacher. Jesus gives him a bunch of commands. He says, all of those things you did, you, you mentioned, I talk, I, I've, I've done, I've obeyed. And then Jesus is saying this, and this is what he's saying to us. But I would like to talk to you about the thing you don't want me to talk to you about. Yikes. 
I want to talk about, this is what Jesus is saying to you, I want to talk about the thing you don't want to talk about. What is that for you? For a lot of people, it is money. It's just the thing we don't talk, we don't, have you had the conversation with Jesus about money? Could you go home to your family and say, to your kids, you don't tell them the details, God and I have talked about our finances. We've had the conversation. I'm committed to giving God my first and my best. I'm committed to the principle of blessing that I'm going to honor God with my finances and I'm going to put him first in my finances. Most people have not had that conversation with God about their finances. Here's another one. How about your past? Have you talked to God about your past? Do you know you can be trapped in your past? You ever met anyone that's trapped in their past? You go, how can I be trapped in my past? I'm here. No, well, part of you's here. You'll meet somebody every once in a while. You ever meet that woman who, like, she's 48, but she's acting like she's 24? It's like you're almost, like, trapped in an age. I'm not sure quite what happened there. Part of you is still back at age 24. You're... You should be here at age 48. Not sure what happened. Some people don't want to talk about their past. You want to talk about your parents? Some of you got to talk about your parents. Jesus wants to talk about your parents. Your marriage? Look, there's an old saying, and we could go on and on. There's an old saying. I don't know who first said this, it's, it's eight, but it's ancient, like thousands of years old. What you most want to find is where you least want to look. What you most need to find is where you least want to look. Well, why is that? Because it's been the place you've been ignoring and avoiding. There's an even weirder way that they used to say it. In filth, it will be found. What does that mean? I have to look at something I don't want to look at in my life if I'm going to be healed. I have to talk about something I haven't wanted to talk about in my life if I'm going to be healed. And oftentimes, it's like, well, why would that? That's true for every person because you've been hiding something there that you don't want to look at, that you don't want to talk about in your life. What is that for you? Well, this man, he's unwilling to have the conversation. Look how it ends. Verse 23, and Jesus looked around at the disciples. He said, how difficult, he's going to say this twice, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, so he says it again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel, that would have been the largest animal of that time that they would have seen daily. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. That would have been the smallest opening that they would have known about. The largest animal, smallest opening. Then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. How is it possible with God? It's possible because in this story, there is another rich, young ruler. Jesus. Jesus actually is the true and better rich, young ruler in the story. If you didn't know this, Jesus is very rich. He lives in a very nice neighborhood in heaven. There are golden streets. There are gates everywhere. It's a very nice neighborhood. Jesus left that. And he didn't do what Zacchaeus did, which he didn't just sell half of his stuff. He gave it all away in pursuit of us. He's the rich young ruler who was willing to get, get rid of all of his possessions. He was young. I mean, part of the tragedy 
of the story of the cross is not just what happened to Jesus, but what happened to him at such a young age. You know, I'm older than Jesus was when he died. Jesus gave us him whole, his whole self, and he gave us his youth. And then powerful. I mean, there's nobody more powerful than Jesus Christ. But he, like people who use power correctly, he used power not to be selfish, but he used power to serve us. And he used his power to go to the cross and to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. And it is the grace that comes to us from the cross of Christ that lets us look at the things we've not been willing to look at in our lives and say, Lord, would you do something about this? Years ago, I read a, um, a little book. I think it's called Christ Heart, um, or Your Heart, Christ Home. It's a very famous little story. You can read it in like an afternoon. And it's the story about a guy, and he invites Jesus into his house, into his heart. And it's talked about as a home, and Jesus comes in the front door, and he says, come on in. And he shows him the library, and he shows him the kitchen. And, and then Jesus says, what about this hallway down here? And he says, oh, you can't, you can't go down there. He says, I can't go down there. And the whole story of the book is Jesus gently walking through the different rooms in this guy's, in the, the home of this guy's heart. And every time the guy gets afraid to open the door. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm going to come in and we're going to clean this room up together. And I believe that that's Jesus' word to you today. He wants to come into every room in your heart and he wants to, by grace, clean it up together because he bought that grace at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, wherever we are right now, maybe we just need to ask this question, Lord, what is it that we have stopped talking to you about? What is it that you used to speak into our lives in this area? And then just over time, we just decided this is not an area that I want you speaking into anymore. It could be marriage. It could be finances. It could be entertainment choices. And you want to have a conversation with us about that. Lord, what do we need to start talking to you about? Where do we need to just, Lord, invite you and say, Lord, we want you to be part of this conversation, Lord. We, there have been certain things that we've been avoiding and ignoring, and we want to look at it, Lord. We know that part of our healing is in that. Part of our sanctification is in that. Part of our development is in that, Lord. Would you help us to be the type of church where we can, we can share those things with the right amount of people, and together, by grace, we can walk with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.